so I hope that it, that will come out well. Well, Romans 13 is where we are right now. And I want to give a little context uh, for this particular passage, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Uh, it's the most commonly cited passage on the theology of government. Uh, often, I think, treated out of context. But uh, it's not the only passage in the Bible that has to do with how we should understand government and law. Uh, notably, the, the Pentateuch teaches us a lot about law. And in Revelation, we see some cautionary notes about what can happen to government when it goes awry. Uh, this particular passage doesn't answer every question, but it does help us to appreciate government as a gift from God. And that's what I want us to focus on today. Government is a gift from God for our good and for the health of our nation and our world. So as we, before we dig into that, I'd just like to read this short passage for you so it's Uh, fresh in our minds, starting with verse 1 of Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. As you, I'm sure, are aware, we are in the practical part of Paul's letter. Uh, After a very uh, profound discussion of theology in the first 11 chapters, we have these last five chapters uh, where Paul begins to try to apply uh, his teaching uh, in practical ways. Uh, And so we find this passage here, Uh, nestled in this practical section, but we notice that Paul is still introducing theology even as he goes into practical things. He's telling us not only that we should obey the rules, but why they are important. Uh, And in the passage just preceding and the passage just after, we have uh, some profound reflections on love. Uh, In verse 12, I mean, in chapter 12, verse 1, we are told to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then there's a reflection on what that means uh, in terms of relationships, uh, not only with uh, friends and loved ones, but even with our enemies. Uh, And it uh, ends with this 
challenge to not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then immediately following this passage, in 13.8, we're told to let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. So the connection is very strongly made there between uh, love as the Christian duty and then our obeying the law as a way of carrying out that duty. And we'll try to unpack a little bit more about what that means. I think these verses give us practical wisdom for our, our time as well as for those of Paul's initial readers. Now, in the context of uh, when Paul was writing, um, he was uh, writing at a time when the Roman Empire was the dominant power of its day, as I'm sure you're aware. And the Pax Romana was widely credited with allowing a flowering of culture and prosperity. It wasn't by any means a perfect rule, but it was a lot better than some others that had come before and some that came after. And the Roman roads allowed Paul and other early Christians to travel, bringing the gospel to all parts of the empire. The Roman justice, uh, imperfect as it was, provided some basic structure and protections that Paul himself uh, availed. The emperor at the time was Nero. Uh, Nero is known as uh, one, one who persecuted the Christians badly, beginning in 64 AD. This was some years before that, and he was only a young lad of maybe 19 at the time Paul was writing, uh, perhaps guided by his mother. Uh, so it was not the worst of times as of, as of yet, but there was a conflict ongoing between uh, Christians and the Roman government over the issue of worship of idols and of the emperor. And the, the Romans uh, were generally tolerant of various religions, but they assumed that you could practice your own religion and you could still worship them and uh, things would be okay. But for Christians, of course, that's not okay. And so that's where uh, some of the trouble came in. Well, if you were going to summarize in one sentence what I think this passage is saying, it would be something like this. Out of love for God and neighbor, we're called to voluntarily submit to those in authority and to actively support our leaders in their ministry. Now, I'm going to talk about two general points, and I realize sermons are supposed to have three points, so you'll have to figure out what the third one was supposed to have been, but I couldn't figure it out. But the two that I, <laughs> that I discerned here are these. First, uh, Paul, what Paul has to say about the responsibility of government to its citizens, and then second, the responsibility of citizens to their government. And in the first part, under the responsibility of government, uh, four areas that I want to talk about uh, two more indirect and two that are more direct. And indirectly, government is to restrain evil and to reward good. And then directly, government is to do good and to punish evil. And if you're going to summarize all those in one sentence, who perhaps could say that government's job is to do justice, because all of those things are parts of what it means to do justice. 
Now take a little, a little thought experiment. Uh, just think for a moment of what all you've done since waking up this morning. Uh, some of you, at least, uh, I imagine, awoke refreshed, and all the more today because you had more time to sleep. Uh, maybe you had a good mattress, um, or your husband doesn't snore. Um, but also, per- perhaps you had a good rest because you didn't have to take turns staying up at night guarding your house from intruders. Because we, do, we have police that patrol the community, and they can be called in times of emergency. And you didn't perhaps hear a lot of noises because we have zoning laws that don't allow noisy factories to build right next to your home. Um, you took a breath of fresh, clean air, perhaps because uh, companies and people are not allowed to pollute the air at will. Uh, you took a shower with clean water, not worrying uh, probably that it was full of toxic chemicals. Um, And if you took a jog around the neighborhood, you probably weren't worried that you were going to be kidnapped and held for ransom. Those are all uh, gifts that our government helps to contribute. If you are on any medications, you took medicines that had been tested and shown to be safe and effective before they were put on the market. If you had breakfast, you had foods that had met certain safety standards. If you brewed a cup of coffee, it was probably brought here under the terms of a trade agreement that our government had negotiated. If you walk on on the sidewalks or drove to church, you did so on roads or sidewalks that were built by local, state, or federal governments with reasonable expectations of traffic safety because there are traffic lights and speed limits and... um, licensing of drivers. I should say, having been in Italy this last week, uh, they don't have all those things. <laughs> so, uh, especially, there appears to be no rules about tailgating. So, uh, so I appreciate that we do have those here. And, and as you walked into church here, you probably weren't afraid that you were going to be arrested or, uh, or attacked because you came to worship um, freely, because that's one of the protections that our government provides. So those are the kind of things that we think about when we think about the responsibilities of government. First of all, government is to restrain evil, uh, bringing terror on those who do, do wrong and making those who are thinking of doing wrong afraid. Provides a deterrence factor so that the evil that is done is less than it would otherwise be. Now, of course, government doesn't prevent every evil from taking place, and we wouldn't want a government powerful enough to do that, because government itself then participates in evil. But at least we know that there is a general order that is established by God uh, in which citizens are deterred from doing wrong. What a blessing that is. Uh, Paul here is realistic. Uh, In light of human sinfulness, something that Paul has brought out, especially in chapters 1 and Three and seven and elsewhere, uh, we know that uh, anarchy, that is no rule, would lead to chaos. And in those places where there is no effective rule, we do see chaos. Even thinking of personal examples, such as if you've been at a family reunion when no one was in charge. How well did that work? 
Well, how even more when you have a country with no one in charge? And that's, in fact, what we see in today in a few places in the world, such as in Somalia, but large parts of it, large parts of the Congo, and other failed states. You see a place where no one is really in charge, and that uh, is not good for anybody. Uh, or if you imagine some of the uh, doomsday scenarios of what would happen the day after nuclear attack or terrorist attacks and so on, and where there's just chaos. The order has broken down completely. Well, government helps to restrain that level of evil. And even fallen governments are used by God in this way to keep order. In fact, as one commentator has put it, the only thing worse than a brutal dictatorship is no government at all. And so we thank God that we do have government, even if it's not perfect. Government restrains evil by establishing and enforcing the rules of the road, literally the traffic rules, but also rules relating to weights and measures and safety, labels, um, environmental protection, uh, business, contract law, uh, regulations on insider trading in the stock markets, uh, worker safety, any number of areas where uh, there are, would be more evil if it was not restrained by the force of government. Now, in all these areas, of course, there are legitimate debates to be had about the prudence of particular re regulations or laws, and some may be wise and others not wise, and that we can argue about that or debate about that. But the wisdom of having rules is beyond question. In the uh, Christian principle of subsidiarity, we can see that different kinds of rules should be established at different levels according to how broad or how narrow uh, the scope of the problem is that's being addressed. Uh, so there, those are all things that can be debated. Uh, but for people who say that there's no place for government, are, I think, are not in line with what we are seeing here in, in Romans chapter 13. Now, a second indirect function of government is to reward the good. Uh, do what is right, and he will, he will commend you, says in verse 3. Now, this is an undervalued uh, role. We don't hear so much about it as about the others. But law has a teaching function. It sets norms of behavior. And for example, you know, the policy of the charitable tax deduction encourages and rewards those who, who give uh, to the needs of others. And that's a worthy, worthy thing to uh, support. The child tax credit uh, supports and encourages and rewards those who take their time and energy to raise the next generation. That's also something that's very important, and it's good for government to reward those things. In terms of commendations, there are, of course, medals of honor, uh, naming of streets or buildings, uh, having heroes identified during speeches like at the State of the Union. Even on a local level in your schools, there are honor rolls and student of the month or student of the year. Those are ways of honoring people, those who are doing the good. And it's something uh, that should be, the government should do. Uh, the, if you go into a store looking for appliances, you will see that some are labeled as Energy Star appliances. And those are ones that the government is commending because of their energy efficiency. Now, direct roles 
the government is also called to do good, not only to commend the good that citizens do, but to do good those things which citizens can't do on their own. In verse 4, he is God's servant to do you good. Well, what are some examples of that? So we've already mentioned the roads that both we enjoy and the people in Paul's time enjoyed, roads and other infrastructure uh, treaties and trade agreements that allow for peaceful relationships between nations. Research into medical uh, cures for diseases and science and education. These are things that government directly does that are goods. And again, uh, there's much here that's allowed and not necessarily every one of these things is required of every government. So there are prudential judgments. Um, And fallen governments sometimes produce imperfect goods. But still, all these things are part of God's plan for blessing us uh, to have governments who do good. And then finally, the other role that government has is to punish evil. Uh, He is an agent of wrath, again in verse 4, to bring punishment to the evildoer. And the government does not bear the sword for nothing. Well, the sword can be used to cut off hands or heads or bank accounts. Uh, But there are also other things that can be done before we get to that stage of punishment. Uh, Legislatures establish laws and police um, enforce them. Prosecutors uh, bring people to trials. Courts and judges uh, consider facts and render judgments. And then prisons and parole officers uh, try to uh, rehabilitate those who who have offended our laws. Those are all functions that government is called to do in, in punishing evil. Now, a caveat here is uh, we see, if you look at other scriptures, particularly uh, Revelation 13, you'll see what happens when government itself, uh, instead of punishing evil, punishes the good. And we know that that is not part of God's plan. Uh, But to the extent that punishment is uh, restorative and deterrent, and uh, it is something that is used by God, to help bless, bless us bless and bless our nations. Well, that's a, a very short summary. Some of the re- responsibilities that we find in these verses of government's responsibility to its citizen. But now what about us? What are our responsibilities to our government? And here I find two principal thoughts that I want to emphasize. The first is that we are called to submit to our government, and the second is we are called to support our government. The submission in particular is a voluntary submission. Everyone must submit themselves. It's a word that's a little, uh, not quite as strong as the word to obey. Uh, involves a uh, yielding of our rights to our, our, some of our freedom, which is necessary in order to live in community, we voluntarily submit, just in the same way that husbands and wives submit to one another, that children submit to their parents, uh, workers to their supervisors, uh, as we've seen, we see in Ephesians and Colossians. By submitting to government, we are, in fact, showing our love for God and our neighbor, 
uh, because we're supporting the common good. Uh, <clears throat> now, the attitude with which we do this is also important uh, because Paul emphasizes it's a matter not only of avoiding possible punishment, but also because of conscience. In other words, we want to do this because it's right, because it's the loving, good and loving thing to do, not just because we want to avoid uh, being punished. Jesus, in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, talked about going the extra mile of giving a, our, both our vest as well as our coat to someone who needs it or asks for it. So what might we do as we voluntarily submit? Well, perhaps we would not only use our seatbelts, but we would drive safely. We would not only make sure that our car passed the bare minimum of the emissions test, but we would maintain our car in good condition so that it wasn't a hazard to others. Or we would not only pay the minimum wage or better to our workers, but we would treat them well and respectfully. Or we would not only uh, refrain from littering, but we would pick up the litter that we find from others. In these ways, uh, and many others, we voluntarily submit ourselves to the needs of our community uh, and the edicts of our government. Now, a few caveats again. Government does not have a license to oppress, and we read the prophets clearly. And as we've already seen here, government's job is to do and promote the good. So what do we do then if the laws are actually unjust and tell us to do things that we ought not to? Now, this is often where we first go when we come to this passage, but I wanted us to first think about the broad context before getting here. But what do we do? In Acts chapter 5, uh, Peter said it's, we ought to obey God rather than man. And there are times when what God and man require diverge. Well, in those cases, we are not required, in fact, we're required not to obey an unjust law, but we must be willing to accept the penalty or consequences of that law, and that, that's the way in which we submit to our government. The government says you have to bow down for this idol. We say, well, I'm very sorry, I can't do that because I worship God alone. And the pen, and then, but whatever the penalty is for that, we then accept that penalty as part of the price of living and having the courage of our convictions. Uh, Martin Luther King said much the same in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He said, one who breaks an unjust law and who willingly accepts the penalty is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. Or as St. Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. Now finally, besides submitting, uh, we are responsible as citizens and as Christians to support our government. And we do this, first of all, by paying our taxes, which, as Paul explains here, is really supporting those who are in full-time government ministry. Now, I don't know about you, when I, I think of a full-time ministry, I usually think of people in a pastoral context. But Paul here uses this very same language to talk about people who serve in government. They are also God's ministers, serving uh, the people through government. And the way that their support is is through the taxes that we pay. So we pay our taxes uh, willingly, not just grudgingly. Now, does this mean we can't advocate for lower taxes? Well, no. 
Uh, again, the level of tax is a prudential matter. Uh, but to ag- advocate for no taxes or for a reflexive anti-tax stance seems to me to be incompatible with what we find here in these verses 6 and 7 because we were told to pay our taxes as a matter of our duty to God and to government. Um, we also are called here to show respect. It says if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, which is another kind of tax, then revenue. If respect, then respect. So how we uh, treat our leaders in our dialogue, what we say about them, how we talk about them, is a way of showing respect or not. And there's many times in our setting a lack of civility in political dialogue, which is, I think, really distressing and is not honoring to God. We don't have to agree with everything that every one of our leaders has done. Probably none of us do. Um, But we don't have to use derogatory language even when we disagree. We can show respect where respect is due. And finally, honor, and even higher than respect. We can honor those who serve. We can thank them for what they do. I don't know how often uh, you have uh, had a chance to thank one of your elected leaders or government leaders for what they do. Even a clerk in a government office, you can thank them for their service because uh, what they're doing is really carrying out the work of God. Uh, Writing a short letter to a member of Congress that doesn't ask them to do something. It just says, thank you for serving and want to let you know that we're praying for you. That uh, would be, in itself, a very helpful thing uh, for us to do. And you can do that for any member, whatever their party. In in the work that I do, I do have a chance to meet rather often with members in in the Congress and administration, and, and I often try to take that opportunity to thank them and you'd be surprised how often they say, well, thank you. I haven't had anyone say that for a long time. Uh, and it really, so it really does go a long way. And, of course, along with thanking them, praying for, with them and for them, as we're instructed in uh, Timothy as well, specifically to do, praying for our leaders is part of how we support them. And then a couple other areas, and by participating in the political process, and this is... Um, often a distasteful thing to many of us. But in a democracy, we're part of the government. We have roles, and so part of that responsibility that God has instituted for government rests on our shoulders. Certainly, at a minimum, we, living in a democracy, we have the opportunity and therefore responsibility of participating in elections. And as we've already been reminded, we'll have one of those on Tuesday. Uh, So... It would be good if before going into the polls that we all did a little homework so we knew who these people are that are wanting to be our our leaders. And then we can make judgments, prayerful judgments, about which ones to support. And there's many different reasons for supporting one or another. And in some cases, we might want to go further and actually help a candidate or a member Uh, by giving financially or volunteering or writing things uh, that go into newspapers or letters to the editor. Uh, If there are leaders that we are particularly uh, impressed with, 
Uh, we might also ourselves consider uh, the idea of going into part or full-time government ministry. You know, we so often are, people are called to consider becoming a pastor, but you could also be considered to become a policymaker, a senator or congressperson or a um, bureaucrat even of some kind, because uh, obviously the elected leaders don't do all these things on their own. They need a whole team of people. Now, caveat, the church needs to remain nonpartisan. I'm very pleased to see that you all are doing that. I was also pleased to see in your website that you have decided to take an active role in supporting uh, fixing of our broken immigration system. That's something that's urgently needed. Uh, but even that you're doing in a nonpartisan way, which is as it should be. Church needs to be a place where there is room for Republicans and Democrats and Independents and Whigs and Greens and whoever else, you know, whatever parties are out there. We all need to be able to come together before under God and before Christ um, and serve together. And then finally, by advocating uh, for policies such as you're doing on immigration reform uh, or caring for the poor, caring for God's creation, uh, caring for the most vulnerable and defenseless among us. Those are ways in which you know, we can call our government to be the very best version of government that they can be. So just to try to wrap this together, government is the servant of God to restrain evil, to commend the good, to do good, and to punish evil. We are called to voluntarily submit and support our government, uh, not only out of duty, but also out of love for God and, our, and for our neighbor. We should seek neither to demonize nor to deify government. If government is God's servant, it means that government has an important responsibility, but it's under God, and government never takes the place of God. Could you try to think of one government person that you could pray for this week. Maybe as you go to the polls, you'll be um, led to pray for one of the candidates, or as you watch the results, pray for whoever is elected to represent you or to <coughs> serve in some way that is important to you. Pray for that person this week. And then, can you think of one way that you could practically help in supporting your leaders. <coughs> Maybe writing them a note of encouragement. Or if you were in a government office, speaking personally with whoever you are dealing with. And in doing that, you'll be helping to fulfill the call that Paul has put in front of us <coughs> to love our neighbors and to love God uh, by su submitting and supporting the government that he's given us. Shall we pray? <coughs> Gracious God, thank you for the wonderful privilege that we enjoy to live in a country that has substantial freedoms and protections for its citizens that in many important ways fulfills the calling that you have given it 
as your servant. Thank you for those who give their time to serve as government ministers. We pray for all those who are serving who are, or who are seeking to serve, that they may be guided by you, that they may recognize that they are accountable to and submissive to you and to your purposes for them. We pray for those in other countries who enjoy much less freedom than we do, thinking especially of those in the Middle East, in Africa, who live in places of conflict and turmoil, who fear not just for their livelihoods, but for their very lives. May you make us instruments of your peace. May you make our country an instrument of peace in the world so that we and people around the world will more and more know the peace of